um, as we were praying for Richard, I mean, what a great way to, to have like your own moment, right? Just don't come on the day where everyone else gets, gets welcomed in and then you get your own moment at the end, right? But I was just reminded that we're welcoming him into the little sea, if you know that language, just the small sea. We, we're one church in a big capital C church, global church. And this week I met with some other pastors um, around Stelly's, as we often do, and it was, it was a hard meeting. It was a smaller group of us, and some churches in this town, there's a church in particular that's going through an incredibly hard time right now. And um, we need to be prayerful, because God doesn't love one hope. God loves the church. God loves the body. He has people in, in places that we couldn't even imagine. I love that story well, I, think, I think it's Elijah where he's, um, there's, there's no one left but me. It's only me, God. Everyone else has bowed their knee. And then God's like, no, no, no. There's 5,000 that I've reserved for myself. I think in heaven we're going to see people from places we don't even imagine they could come from. And I want to, I just felt as we were praying for Richard into our congregation, just that we need to be prayerful around our town. Saying, God, would you, would you restore, would you redeem what, where man has broken things and where sin has crept in and all other range of things, would you be so gracious? And that's, that's what we can rely on, that the Father loves the church. It's not, it's not me trying to keep this thing going, guys. I, I, am, I am backed by the almighty God of heaven. He holds his church. He sustains his church. Otherwise, we would have, we would have up and died a very, very many thousand years ago. That's not what I'm preaching on, but just wanted to just say. All right, would you turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 in your Bibles, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible with you, it will come up on the screen, but I really do encourage you to get a Bible and to read it. I love in my devotional space, and I've been preaching out of it quite a bit lately, but I really love the NLT, the New Living Translation. It's just very conversational. It's accurate. If I need to know exactly what the, what the Hebrew was, I'll go into the ESV, of course, go, and that's, that's your word-for-word translation. But as a devotional reading, the Corinthians, I'm not Corinthians, the NLT is a, is a very beautiful version to have. But I encourage you to read from your own Bible so that you learn how to find your way around. I want to speak this morning on, we've been speaking about the love of God and how God loves us. I want to speak about how we respond to God's love. That's the idea this morning. And I want to ask you a question as I start. What is the great sign of God's love? If you were to look for a sign, if you wanted to seek out an answer as to whether or not God loves you, if you asked, does God love me? It's a good question. Where would you look? Where would you look to find that? What stones would you be unturning to answer that question? Does God love me? What aspect of God is, or what aspect of God, or who He is, or what He's done would convince you? You might be asking that as a Christ follower, struggling with the love of God. We don't always feel like God loves us. Sometimes we go through seasons or moments where we feel like God doesn't love us. Or we feel confused. We feel like our, our identity is not rooted in the love of God. It's rooted in something else. And that thing gets shaken. And we go, I, I feel like my world is falling apart. I don't know if I'm loved. You might be asking that as someone who doesn't follow Jesus at all, but you're exploring faith or you're exploring Christianity, and it's, it's a huge question because I don't think that you're looking for religion. I think you're looking for the answer to, am I loved? Does God love me? That's ultimately the answer that we, we're trying to find. We're not looking for some religious system that I must do, 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 do so that I can. Certainly not what I've looked for in my life. So is there one great sign, one great 
indicator, if you would, of his love? Well, well yes. I mean, I think there very clearly is. Surely it's the sending of Jesus to earth. Just that, that song we just sang, from a throne of endless glory to a cradle in the dirt. Around this time of, of year, you start hearing the word Emmanuel quite a lot, right? And people are like, what does that mean? What is, what is Emmanuel? It's not just a Christian word that gets thrown about at Christmas time. It's, if, you, if you read the scripture, what you quickly realize is that the people of the Old Testament and even into the New Testament didn't have the same scripture we have. They weren't reading it. Those people weren't reading what we're reading. And so God began to reveal himself, and the way that he did it is he gave himself names, so he would do something, and then he would say, I'm Jehovah Jireh, which means I'm the provider. But until that time, the people didn't necessarily know that that was who God was. And then they go, oh, God is Jehovah Jireh. And so the, the fullness of what we understand of God and walk in today, Isaiah didn't have. Like some of these stories of Jesus, he didn't know that. He didn't understand the cross yet. Right? It's quite a thought. But when Jesus comes and God calls him Emmanuel, it's like a commemorative name. That's, that's the way I like to think of it. It's like you go on holiday and you get a, something to commemorate your holiday. Each time that God does something, he gives this commemorative name. And so Emmanuel means God dwells among us. God with man. From a throne of endless glory to a cradle in the dirt. And I, I don't think we could look any further for the sign of, of God's love than Jesus coming to earth and then beyond that, Jesus dying on earth at the hands of men. That, so Jesus is God's love sign. That's the sign you're looking for. This is how John says it, one of Jesus' disciples in John chapter 15. He, Jesus is speaking, and it's as Jesus is walking the earth. So imagine he's walking with his disciples, and one day he says to them, As the Father has loved me, Jesus says, I'm secure in the love of the Father. I know who the Father loves me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. That's what he says. And then he says this in verse 13 of John 15. Greater love has no one than this. If you want to know what the greatest love is that there can be on earth, this is what Jesus says it is. To lay down one's life for one's friends. And then he carries on and says, you are my friends. What a beautiful prophetic moment where Jesus knowing he's going to die says there's no greater love than someone who lays down their life for their friend and you're my friends I'm going to lay down my life for you you don't know that yet I have a friend um, a real friend <laughs> love um, and his wife fell pregnant uh, many many years ago and um, very soon after falling pregnant she found out that she was also carrying cancer in her body. And they were advised to abort the child so that she could live, so that she could go through chemotherapy and that she could have a good chance of survival. It was early on in the pregnancy and they refused to do that. And so she gave birth to a beautiful little girl. And I think it was not even a year later, she passed away. The mom passed away. What, what kind of love do we have? This is the kind of love that we have. Could there, could there be a greater love from a mother to a child than that story would, would illustrate? This is not just a, a Bible idea. This is an idea that we see around us. Every movie we watch, 
almost would have this idea of, of love, like true love, the sign of love being I'm willing to die so that you can live. I've been watching the, the Hunger Games with my daughter. Any of you fans of the Hunger Games in here? Right? <laughs> yes, Wesley, I see that. I see that hand. But you know when Katniss says, I volunteer as tribute, it's a, little, it's a bit of a spoiler, right? But if you haven't watched the movie, it's right in the beginning. So. But like her sister's chosen to go into this crazy battle thing and she goes, no, 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 I, I volunteer as tribute. Or oh, my boy's busy reading June at the moment. Anyone read June? What a, what a book, what a story. And um, there's this guy in there called Duncan Idaho. I'm just giving out just free like um, spoilers this morning. Just block your ears if you... If you don't want to know. But like Duncan Idaho, like there's this moment where he, Paul, who's this Messiah type figure in the book of June, written by a Christian guy, actually um, locks himself into this chamber so that Paul can't get in because he knows he's going to come and try and help him, but he knows he has to defend him. So he, he dies. Duncan Idaho dies. Spoiler. Um, so that Paul can live. What, what greater love? This is the great love sign of the Father. And you know, John, the same disciple that wrote that John 15, where Jesus says, greater love is no one than this, to lay down his, love, his life for his friend. And he also says in that same text, as the Father has loved me, so I love you, so I'm going to lay down my life for you. He's reflecting on that verse years and years, I think it's 40 or 50 years later, in 1 John 3.16, the lesser known John 3.16. And he says, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. This is the biblical love sign. Jesus is the sign of God's love. Friends, the reason I'm, I'm laboring this is that I'm convinced that the only way we can truly understand the love of the Father, it's not from a moment of worship. That helps. It's not from a conversation with a friend, although that helps. It's not from an earthly father or an earthly person, a husband, a wife, a friend, loving us so much and we see God's love through that person so that we have a revelation of the love of the Father. All of those things help. But the true way that we see the love of the Father is as we look upon Jesus. When we meditate on Jesus, that means thinking about regularly, reading God's word and going, what did Jesus do? For, what, what did he do? Just tell me again, what did he do? For me, in my sin, as we have revelation of this and we understand more and, we, and then we sing worship songs and they're reflective of this, this truth for us, this love of God begins to bubble and bubble and bubble in our hearts. It's not a standalone thing apart from Jesus. It's in Jesus that we see God's love for us. This is how it happens in John 14. Philip, one of his disciples, says, Lord, speaking to Jesus, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. We'll believe if you show us the Father. Jesus answers him and says, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I have been among you such a long time, listen to this, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? And this is the foundation that I want to lay as we respond to, this is the question, how do we respond to the love of God? We must see that the love of God is in Jesus. It's displayed in Jesus. That's the love sign 
of the Father. We see the lavish love of God displayed in the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. And so the question is, how do you respond to Jesus? If that's the sign of God's love, well, how do you respond to the sign of God's love? How do you respond to Jesus? Well, the gospel tells us, the gospels, all of them, tell this beautiful story of a conversation Jesus had with his disciples. He's walking with them, and he says, who do the people say I am? How do the people respond to me, is another way to phrase that. And they say, well, some say you, Elijah, some say this, some say that. And Jesus then asks this incredible question, which echoes through all the ages to us. But who do you say that I am? Friends, and that's the most critical question you'll answer this week. Those of you writing exams, our students, your exams, I know they're important, but they're not nearly as important as this question. Nothing you're going to answer this week answers this question. What, what about you? Who do you say I am. That is the hugest question of your life. How will you respond to the love of Jesus? So I want to focus in now on, on 1 Corinthians 1. Keep your, and get your finger in Matthew 13 as well. We'll end off there. But it's actually a passage about cynicism and disappointment. This passage. That we're going to be speaking about this morning, really. I wanted to speak on doubt and sin and all sorts of other things, but we're not going to have time. So I'm going to focus in on cynicism and on disappointment, just to encourage you for a Sunday morning. Right? But if you're anything like me, when I respond to God's love, it feels like it comes from such a broken well. It doesn't feel like there's very many days where it just is this pure stream of just joy and peace and happiness and security and my identity is sure. It feels like I'm, I often have this picture of myself of like a well that's got some nice fresh water in it, some really dirty brown water and a whole bunch of stones that this water's trying to like come up through. And so I, I really was going to focus this morning on just like the, the joy of responding to God's love. And I just felt as I was preparing that actually most of our reality is a little bit more cynical, a little bit more disappointed a little bit more well with stones. But again, maybe it's just me. So hope for the cynic. Is there hope for the cynic? Are you cynical? Does the gospel feel like an assault on your reason? When we speak about the cross, when we speak about Jesus, does it feel like you're being asked to check out your brain at the door? Like, you know, I've often felt like that. Do you ever say, it just doesn't, it doesn't make sense? Maybe you even say, I want it. I really want it to make sense. I want it to be, but it's just not reasonable. It's just not reasonable. This, this story of the gospel, of Jesus, of the cross, it's not intelligent. My brain, your brain can't make sense of it. And somewhere in us, there's this, cynical thing that takes root. Just me. I have great hope, kind of, <laughs> kind of, for you this morning. The, the hope, we'll get to it a little bit later, some more, but, but the hope is that you're right. That's, that's what God's Word teaches. It's right because the Bible says you're right. The Bible says that it is a really foolish gospel. All right, and that's what we're going to be focusing in on this morning and reading 1 Corinthians. So let's do it. Let's read 1 Corinthians in chapter 1 and verse 18. And I'll read a part and we'll speak about it, and I'll read another part and we'll speak about it. 
This is what Paul, writing to the Corinthians, says. And, and remember, guys, we, we're not well served in our culture because we grow up with like, so much Christian stuff that Christianity feels very ordinary for us. It feels very reasonable, kind of, until we really stop and think. So I see loads of people losing their faith they never really had it, but because they, they grew up in homes where they talked about Jesus and they kind of understood a little bit about Jesus, but they never really had to stop and think. So they get to university and suddenly these people start saying, but that doesn't make sense, but that doesn't make sense, but that doesn't make sense. And they've got to stop and ask these hard questions for themselves. And they go, oh, I've lost my faith. No, you haven't. You just didn't understand that it was foolish from the start. Right? And so let's, we can agree with our friends when they're saying that. So let's read this. So Paul's writing to this these, these, this town, Corinth, there's a lot of pagans in this town. And for them, they're looking at the gospel in the cold light of day. They're not looking at it with cultural Christian lenses. And they're going, this is crazy. This is crazy. Paul says, the message of the cross is foolish to those who are headed for destruction. That means those who are not following Jesus, not going to follow Jesus. The message of the cross is foolish to them. But we who are being saved, those who are following Jesus, know it is the very power of God. As the scripture says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and discard the intelligence of the intelligent. So where does this leave the philosophers? Where does this leave the scholars and the world's brilliant debaters? Where does this leave the Stellenbosch crowd who love to philosophize and think? Well, Paul says, God has made the wisdom of the world look foolish since God in his wisdom saw to it that the world would never know him through human wisdom. He has used our foolish preaching to save those who... Understand? See, the, the thing with this passage is it's a faith passage. It's a, fas it's a passage about belief. It's not a passage about reason. It's not a passage about understanding. And so, friends, we, we need somewhere deep in our hearts to get this clear that from human intellect, the gospel does not make sense. Without faith, without belief it's not possible to come to God it's not possible to please God if we don't have faith and I think we forget that I think we forget and we try and, and reason and then when reason breaks down we feel like we're having a faith crisis because our faith was based on reason but faith by nature is not reason I'm not saying that there's nothing reasonable. I'm not saying you can't have debates or apologetics or these things, but now I want to pause for a moment on cynicism and look at the other major emotion in this passage. So there's there's like a there's a foolishness of the gospel emotion, and then at the same time there's a disappointment with God. The whole nation of Israel rejects God because he wasn't what they thought he was going to be. So they had an expectation of who the Messiah was supposed to be. They have the reality of who the Messiah is, and for them, the gap in between those things is disappointing. They're really disappointed with who Jesus actually is. See, it says it's, 
This is how it explains it about the Jews. Verse 22. It's foolish to the Jews who ask for signs from heaven. And it's foolish to the Greeks who seek human wisdom. So when we preach that Christ was crucified, the Jews are offended. And the Gentiles say it's all nonsense. This passage should give us great hope. See, the question on the Jewish lips is, is God really powerful? The question on their lips is, Jesus, how can you be the Messiah? What they're expecting is a God who comes in Egypt and delivers them from Pharaoh and smashes the Egyptian army. This is their experience, and rightly so. They're looking back on their history and going, this is how we've understood God. He's the one who comes and takes us out of slavery and opens the Red Sea, and we walk through, and as the Egyptians come, he crushes them. He's the one who keeps us and sustains us for 40 years in the desert, sending miraculous food from heaven. Our sandals never wear out. That'd be great. He's the one that when we go into Jericho, into the promised land, and we circle it and we shout his name, the walls fall down, and we walk in, and and it's the God who again and again and again is the God who delivers through power. He's the God who, even when they sin and they go into exile and they're in Babylon and they're with the Assyrians, they cry out to God and he takes them back to their promised land. And yes, the temple is not quite as nice anymore, but Ezra and Nehemiah lead them back and they rebuild the temple and it's the God who comes through with power. They're looking for a powerful God. God has moved so powerfully among them in the past and they desperately need him to do it again. They're like, God, look at our Roman oppressors. We're this little tiny persecuted minority in this awful political system that they were living in. Where are you? Send us our Messiah. We're waiting for our Messiah and he's going to come with a sword and he's going to tell these Romans exactly who they are. And Jesus comes presenting dying on a cross. Isaiah calls him a suffering servant you remember what they shout at jesus on the cross if you if you you keep on saying you're the messiah jesus now you you're on on this powerless cross look at you if you really are the messiah they challenge him why don't you save yourself as you saved others and the jews offense with jesus is that he's not who they wanted him to be is that he's not who they thought they would be and in their minds he's completely powerless and they're like I, I, I can't serve that God I'm not interested in this Messiah and so they, they spit the words foolishness as if this could be our Messiah are you kidding me so we have the cynic who says it's foolish to the Greeks who seek human wisdom Guys, that could be written about Stellenbosch. The gospel is foolishness here. When you go out on a Friday night and try and tell your friends about the cross and Jesus, God's love, it's foolish. Try and tell them about God creating man and woman in a certain way. It's foolish. Tell them about God's ideas of sexuality and ethics. It's foolish. And then we have the disappointed sign seeker the one who wanted power. It's foolish to the Jews because they ask for signs from heaven. They constantly, where's the sign? Where's where's the sign from heaven? 
Well, we're asking the question, how do we respond to the love of God? Well, how did they respond to the love of God? Well, the Jews, their response was offense. This is not the Messiah that we want. The Greeks, the philosophers, the debaters, the wise of the age, their response is to say it's all nonsense. It's the word that's used in the NLT. It makes no sense. Nonsense. Friends, let me ask you again, are you cynical? Are you disappointed and offended? Maybe you needed God's power to save your marriage. Maybe you needed God's power to save your child or someone that you loved, your friend. And you say, God, if you're so powerful, if you're so good, why is my friend doesn't, why don't they follow you? Why didn't you save them from their cancer? Why did they die? Why did this happen? Why did that happen, God? I'm, and if, if you're honest with yourself around your emotion, you're disappointed. Is there any hope? Well, there's odd hope. <laughs> there is odd hope. We should have called our church odd hope. An Afrikaner recently told me that our church was called Eni Whoopi. Eni Whoopi, I like that. Friends, the hope is that you can rest from your excruciating mental struggles. You really can. You, there's, there's a relief when you realize that you're trying to work this thing out in a Western intellectual space all the time. You're constantly trying to reason your way toward God. God can, I, can I just ask you, would you even want to serve the God that you could reason your way toward? Would you, if you could reason God out and write him down on a piece of paper or write him down in some books and some volumes and understand him, wouldn't that by nature make you God? If you could understand God, like the very nature of God is that there's this unreasonableness about it. I don't want to reason my, my God away. And so it's a great, it's a great relief for me from my, my excruciating mental exercise of trying to figure God out when I just realize I can't. I just go, It's a great relief when I realize that the, that the space is worked out in a spiritual space, that as I cry out to God, it's not my effort, it's not my, my human ingenuity, it's not trying to think harder about Jesus or the aspects of the cross or, or about these things, it's not these things alone which, which take me close to God or, or, or help me to understand God, it's God himself that breathes his spirit in me and without him doing that, I'll never understand. And I know it's a weird kind of hope, but there is a kind of relief in understanding that and really letting that, that sink in. When we cry out, I don't understand, but, but help me. I'm drowning in my doubt. I'm cynical. I'm disappointed. Help me, please, God. And to realize that this work cannot be done by human hands, for me, is a great hope. It's a beautiful hope, but I'm throwing myself on the Savior. I think it was Spurgeon who said, blessed are the rocks upon which my life is smashed. And when we do, when we do begin to respond to God like this, I, I was lying on a, a couch this week, it's a very random story, and I closed this one eye. <laughs> do you ever do this? You close your eye and just put your finger there and see how your finger moves around. But I was looking at a cloud and there was a little dirt, piece of dirt on the window. And as I closed my one eye, the dirt was like this side of the cloud. And then I opened my eye and it was on this side. And, I, and it was, okay, a very stupid story, right? Another story, I often think about a film set and like you know, there's a character, like the hero or the heroine and like there's this close-up of them. It's like right, right in their face, the camera. 
and then suddenly it like zooms out, like the drone or the helicopter view. And it's the same thing happening. Exactly the same scene is being displayed, but it's from a completely different perspective. Suddenly you see the, the fields or whatever it is that they're standing in, or the houses, or the, you know, and it's this, it's this idea of changing the camera angle. And, and when the Holy Spirit comes and begins to awaken in our heart who the Father is and, and how we can respond to the Father, it's as if the camera angle suddenly changes. It's as if you've got the other eye. You'll remember that, right, with the cloud. The other eye is suddenly the Holy Spirit saying, no, 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 you haven't, you haven't seen this right. And this is what 1 Corinthians is effectively doing. Suddenly we see not, not a weak man dying on a cross. We don't see a powerless Jesus who the Pharisees are mocking. If you can save them, why can't you save yourself, you fraud? We read the Gospels and we find instead a story of a man who says to his father, Father, if this cup can be taken from me, will you take it? And his father says no, so he says okay. The most powerful act of mankind is being demonstrated on the cross, but we just can't see it right. We're looking out of the wrong eye. We're looking with the wrong camera angle. And as the Holy Spirit, because it's only a spiritual work that can do this. Guys, you cannot intellectualize yourself, I can't even say the word, into faith. Suddenly we see not a weak dying man without hope, crushed, but instead we see the curtain raiser to the most powerful act of all time. On, in his death of love, the sign of love, the sign of love of the Father, in his death on Friday are laid the seeds for Sunday where he's resurrected from the dead with all power. And because he's alive, then we're alive. Because he's resurrected, then we can be resurrected. Because he's sinless, then we can be sinless. Even though that feels like a million miles away from our current experience. Because he has victory, we have victory. Because he is declared righteous and without sin, God looks and says, so are you, Paul. So are you, Nate. So are you, Rob. So are you, Andrew. Good to have you. Really, could God's love be any more powerfully on display? Could it be any more powerfully on display? And, and Corinthians carries on and it says this, but to those called by God to salvation, both Jews and Gentiles. So it's dealing with the same two groups, the cynical and the disappointed. Some of them, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. The foolish plan of God is wiser than the wisest of human plans, and God's weakness is stronger than the greatest of human strength. And in that moment, when we realize that, the cynic receives revelation that what at first glance appears so foolish, such a stupid story, such a stupid idea, is in fact the greatest wisdom of all. That God couldn't have put anything together that would display His glory and His greatness and His mix of mercy and love and justice. He couldn't have put anything more beautiful together than Himself coming to earth and dying on a cross. And in that moment of revelation, when the cynic has it, if the cynic has it, they suddenly see what they thought was foolish it's the greatest wisdom of all. This is some of the paradox of the kingdom. And the power-hungry, sign-Jewish 
give me a sign, show me your greatness, show me who you are, realizes that what looks like absolute weakness is instead the greatest power that could ever be displayed. A power so great, we'll spend the rest of our lives trying to figure it out and never get anywhere near the depths of it. But to those called by God to salvation, both Jew and Gentiles, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. This foolish plan of God is wiser than the wisest of human plans and God's weakness is stronger than the greatest of human strengths. And what we ultimately realize is that hope is not found in thinking. Hope is not found in power signs. If God would just come down and do this, if God would just come and heal this person or take away the Iraqi Russia, the Ukraine Russia war, if God would just do that, or if God would do this, or God would it's not, an, it's not ultimately a thing of God's displays of power or displays of our supposed intelligence. It's, it's found in the person of Jesus. It's not a thing we're looking for, it's a person that we're looking for. And in Jesus, this thing begins to settle in our hearts. Jesus is God's love sign. Let me close off with, I'm going to jump a little bit to, does this make sense? Go with me to Matthew 13. Turn there with me if you would. We're asking the question, how do we respond to God's love as seen through Jesus? How do you respond? That's the place that I started. I asked you the question, if you want to know if God loves you, where do you look? You look to Jesus, that's the greatest sign of the love of God, but then how do you respond to that? What do you do? Matthew is actually an incredible gospel to answer this question. When you look at the first chapters of the Gospels of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, it's not add like an apocalyptic book in there, there's like, the, the first chapters, Jesus is actually very plainly telling the people who he is. It's very clear, it's very concise, and he's explaining to them who he is. At the same time, Jesus is not just telling them intelligently who he is, he's also demonstrating with great power who he is. He's raising the dead, he's walking on water, he's healing, he's forgiving sins, he's doing all these incredible things and every one of those miracles is actually a validation of the Messiah. They're not just random miracles. Every single miracle recorded in the gospel is a specific sign given so that people would be looking and going, oh, he's the Messiah. Oh, he's the Messiah. But alongside Jesus doing those things, we see again and again the rejection of the Pharisees, the very elite, the leaders of God's people. The spiritual leaders of God's people are the ones who reject Jesus. In fact, they reject him so much that they say in chapter 12, I think, I think it's chapter 12, they say he does these signs, he does this, he's got this power because he's of the devil. It's the devil who gives him the power. So they, go, they, they don't like go somewhere in the middle, they go right to the extreme end around Jesus. We see whole towns rejecting Jesus. He goes in, he does miracles and they reject him. Whole towns. This is how the people responded. Remember the question we're asking is how do you respond to the love of God? These people, the Pharisees, they responded by saying no. The towns responded by saying no. 
And so Jesus switches tack, and in chapter 13 of Matthew, Jesus begins to teach in parables. Why did Jesus do that? Why did Jesus start teaching? We think of them as nice bedtime stories because we're familiar with them. We've grown up with them. Oh, they know the sower and he's throwing seeds and we have some idea of, of what that means. But Jesus turns to parables in verse 10, chapter 13, verse 10. His disciples ask him this. They say his disciples came to him and asked him, why do you use parables now when you talk to the people? And Jesus says, you are permitted to understand the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but others are not. To those who listen to my teaching, more understanding will be given, and they will have an abundance of knowledge. But for those who are not listening, even what little understanding they have will be taken away from them. This is why I use these parables, for they look, but they don't see. They hear, but they don't really listen or understand. In other words, Jesus began to use parables as a form of judgment on the people. Because they would reject his word and reject his word and reject his word, Jesus began to tell stories that were difficult to understand and that only certain people who the Spirit was awakening their hearts could understand what it was that Jesus was saying. Jesus carries on and he compares his ministry to the ministry of Isaiah, who was the prophet who was constantly crying and telling people, this is what God's going to do, this is what God's going to do. And what was the story of Isaiah? No one listened. Everyone refused to listen to Isaiah. So Isaiah about himself says this. This is what he says. When you hear what I say, you will not understand. When you see what I do, you will not comprehend. For the hearts of these people are hardened and their ears cannot hear. And they have closed their eyes so their eyes cannot see. And their ears cannot hear. And their hearts can't understand. And they cannot turn to me and let me heal them. It's a judgment of God. And Jesus says that he's telling parables, verse 14, because this fulfills the prophecy of Isaiah. I'm asking you this morning, how do you respond to the love of God? Jesus says to us that we must respond as those who has ears. If you have ears, he says, let him hear. If you have ears, let him hear. Friends, that means that there's people with no ears. That's what that text means. There's people who do not have ears. When Jesus says, if you have ears, it means there's some who have no ears. There are some who we can preach and teach and show miracles, do anything you could imagine, and still they will go, there is no God. There is no God. Then it tells you that you can hear, but not hear. Those who have ears, Jesus says, let them hear. Please listen. And there's those of us sitting here this morning, friends, who've heard the gospel. We understand it in some part. But our response to the gospel is so limited. It's so full of distraction and our wealth and our intelligence and our sporting ability or our hurts and our pains, there's a million things that can keep us from stepping into really living a life for God or, or responding to the love of God. And so Jesus is saying in these parables, the Spirit is awakening you. As I'm preaching, the Spirit is awakening you. But what will you do? What will you do with it? Will you hear? Will you just listen and just forget about it? Or are you going to actually hear? And then Jesus is implying that there are those like his disciples for whom they both have ears and hear. They're doing both. 
They're saying, yes, Lord, I hear you. And I know it's a work of your spirit. I know I can't do this for my own reason. But please come and do this work. And do this work. And then listen to what happens to them. Listen, this is, I'm just carrying on in this, in this text in Matthew 13. Jesus says, after speaking about Isaiah and speaking about how these people will not be able to hear and they will not be able to come to God and they will not be able to heal themselves, verse 16 says, but blessed are your eyes because they see and your ears because they hear. I tell you the truth, many prophets and righteous people longed to see, one hope, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see but they didn't see it and they longed to hear what you hear but they didn't hear it. Let me ask you again as I close, how will you respond? How do we respond? I know it comes out of this well, this mixed up well. I feel it too. I feel the cynicism. I feel the disappointment. I, I wanted to speak on doubt. One of the people I didn't mention in Matthew chapter 12 is John the, John the, the Baptist. This, this incredible man who in, in the womb of his mother, when Jesus is introduced, when, when Elizabeth, who was John's mother, is introduced to Mary, who is Jesus' mother, and Mary hasn't told Elizabeth that she's pregnant yet, the little baby inside of Elizabeth leaps the Bible says that John was filled with the Spirit from the womb. I don't know how that happens. That's another whole theology of like being filled with the Spirit. But in the womb, John was filled with the Spirit. This man who sees Jesus and cries out, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. This is, this is John the Baptist. But in Matthew chapter 12, he sends a message with his disciples. He's disappointed. He's ended up in prison. He's, he's afraid, maybe. I don't, I'm reading into it, but he sends his disciples to say to Jesus, are you the Messiah or must I wait for another? Doubt fills John the Baptist as his circumstances in life are come, confront his view of who the Messiah is. And he says, this is, not, this is not the power I was hoping for. I thought you'd set me free. And it's going to get worse, John. You're about to be beheaded. What happened to him, if you don't know. And in that moment of being confronted, he cries out, am I supposed to look for someone else or are you him? But I don't have time to speak about that, but that's doubt. And that's another stone in our well. What about sin? All these things. Jesus says, blessed are you for your eyes have seen. Blessed are you for people long to look upon what you see. The prophets of old, they long to hear what you hear. And my big question to us this morning, friends, again, is the last time I'm going to say it. How will we respond? The love of the Father is sure. It's unquestionable. It's unconditional. It's unceasing. Are you trying to respond intellectually? going again and again around reason, intellect, read your Bible with those kind of Western eyes, or are you reading them saying, Spirit, only you can make this alive. Only you can make this alive in me. We're going to pray. I'm going to ask Sharon and the team to come and um, sing that song in the darkness we were waiting without hope and without life, just a beautiful praise the Father, praise the Son. Can I ask you, I know we all love singing, but just this time, why don't you just listen, just sit and just respond and just ask the Spirit to, 
massage some of this word into your heart and then Nathan's gonna come and lead us in a communion this morning. Father, we feel such complexities inside of us with such a mixture of hope and joy and peace but also sin and brokenness and it's just, it's our condition, it's our human condition and I praise you that you know us I praise you that you know that. You know that even as we try and respond to this wonderful love of the Father, that we get so mixed up in our responses, Lord. And I just pray that this morning's word wouldn't come across as hard, but it would come across as a, as a tonic for us, that we'd feel released, that we'd feel relief to be able to hope in a God who's the only one who can do this work in us. You're the one who starts it. You're the one who finishes it. You're the one who takes every step with us. It's, it's by the work of the Holy Spirit in us. It's, it's you talking to Nicodemus, Jesus, and saying, unless you're born again, this is a work of the Spirit. You have to be born again. But Lord, how can I be born again? How can I go into my mother's womb? It doesn't make sense. It doesn't make reasonable sense. How can I do these things? Nicodemus, unless you are born again of the Spirit, you cannot understand these things, Father, and we throw ourselves on you again. Say so we need you to teach us your love. We need you to reveal your love to us, and we put ourselves in your hands and ask you to do that, Lord. For those who don't know you this morning, Father, would they come to know you by the saving grace of Jesus? Would they see? Would their eyes be opened? Would their ears be able to hear? We love you because you've loved us. And we thank you for who you are.